Um, through this uh, series, we've been seeing how grace changes everything, um, how it affects every sphere of our lives. And, and today we'll see what happens when grace touches a community. Um, so let's pray. Father, we lift our eyes to you, for our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Amen. Can't we all just get along? Uh, these were the words of Rodney King, an African-American man and a victim of police brutality. Uh, in 1991, King was arrested by LAPD officers. Uh, footage showed that he was unarmed, lying on the ground, being beaten mercilessly by police officers. Um, these four officers were eventually tried on charges of excessive force, but they were surprisingly acquitted. Um, and this event led to riots all around Los Angeles by people who were outraged um, by how Rodney King was treated as an African-American man. Um, the riots themselves resulted in 63 deaths, uh, over 200 injuries, 7,000 fires, and over $1 billion in damage. And during the riots, Rodney King himself appealed to the crowds to end the violence. And in his appeal, he famously said, can't we all just get along? Uh, it's this question that's constantly perplexed our society. Uh, we've felt how good it is when people just get along, right? How good it is when we can laugh together, we can be honest with each other, we can share openly in a harmonious environment. Um, but we also see that in any context, why doesn't unity seem to last? Why do communities so quickly divide? We've felt that um, strongly over the last 24 hours with the referendum that's really divided yes and no. Um, we've seen that in the news of this devastating war between Israel and Hamas, between Russia and Ukraine. Um, we've seen how quickly conflict can escalate and we know that there's currently 32 armed conflicts happening in the world right now. No, in, in every society, peace and unity is something we value, but something that's so elusive. Maybe over the last few days, you have asked the same question. Why can't we all just get along? Uh, it's a bit different now, but a, a while ago, in nearly every beauty pageant, when contestants were asked what they wished for above all else, nearly all of them would say, world peace. Um, and when they were asked that, the crowd would applaud and, and explode in, in applause because it's a good answer, but, but, but no solutions offered. Uh, no options are explored. The, the, con the contest just rolls on. It, it's a platitude, isn't it? It's something nice to say that we can all agree on, but, but not much hope is offered. Um, and even bringing this just a little bit closer to home, we know this isn't just a, a societal or a macro problem out there, but one that we feel very deeply in our own lives. Um, even in the best of families, there's dysfunction and, and betrayal and separation. There's conflict in the workplace. Even the, the strongest friendships can be put under incredible strain and can break. 
And so at all levels of society, we constantly feel this tension. Why can't we all just get along? It's this tension that Paul picks up today in our passage. How can two groups that are divided and at conflict with each other find unity and peace? How can historical tensions be permanently healed? Well, for Paul, it's, it's a lot more than just a platitude, but his solution is the church. Paul says the hope for true and lasting unity in the world is the church. That answer may surprise you, um, but let's unpack why. Um, Ephesians is a book about the nature and impact of grace. And last week we saw how grace transforms our, our vertical relationship with God. Um, we saw that because of Jesus we've been reconciled with God by grace through faith. And this week we'll see how grace heals our horizontal relationships amongst his people. And so first Paul says, if you want to be a truly united community, you need to remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. Um, at the time of Ephesians, there was historical animosity between Jews and non-Jews called Gentiles. Um, for Jews back then, this language of circumcision and uncircumcision was a dividing line between those on the inside and those on the outside. And so the circumcision were the pure, holy Jews on the inside who followed the law, while the uncircumcised were the unruly people on the outside. Um, uncircumcision was an offensive term that communicated that non-Jews were unclean and unsavory. Um, we have a similar term in our society too. It's called the Collingwood supporter. <laughs> you know the type, Pastor Lou. Um, and I can say that because they've won the flag, so they've got nothing to complain about. Um, but you can see how this distinction would puff the Jews up in pride and fill the Gentiles with resentment. Um, but what's interesting in this passage is in verse 11, Paul addresses who? Not the Jews, it's the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? That Yahweh, this God of Israel, has now welcomed in so many Gentiles into the church that they're probably now the dominant people group in the church. Um, but of course, even as they enter the church, these historical tensions remain. And so the danger is how would they treat their Jewish brothers and sisters with this whole history of racial tension and animosity? Is unity possible? Paul says it is. Paul says unity and reconciliation is possible if you remember where you came from. Paul says, remember at one time you Gentiles were separated from Christ. You had no hope of a saviour to come. Remember you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You didn't belong to the people of God. You were on the outside looking in. Remember you were strangers to the covenant. You had no relationship with God. You didn't even know he existed. I think basically for all of us here as Gentiles, this is true of us too, isn't it? Um, if you look back on your history, you and your family at one point had no hope in the world. The only reason we're here today as God's people is because someone graciously brought you the gospel. 
The only reason that we are here today is by sheer grace. Um, back then, the prevailing worldview of the time was pretty fatalistic. Um, there was a cyclical view of the world where there was no goal, no future hope. Life just goes on and on and on in never-ending circles. Um, if you like The Lion King, you'll know Elton John's famous song, The Circle of Life. It's a beautiful song, but it's also incredibly fatalistic. Um, Tim Keller picks up that the premise of this song is that ultimately our contribution to the world is one day you'll all be manure. You'll die, your body will degrade, and your contribution to this world will be you'll fertilize the plants. Ultimately, that's all our life means. And I wonder, if you look back on your life, what were you like before meeting Jesus? What were your hopes? Uh, mine were pretty simple. Uh, retire early, play golf every day, and then become fertilizer. Right? <laughs> no goal, no hope. Um, I spoke to someone recently who shared their testimony with me about um, how they were abused and bullied as a child and how those traumatic experiences brought them to the point of uh, seeking to end their life multiple times. Um, but by a sheer miracle of God's grace, Christ rescued them from their lowest point. And without Jesus, they just wouldn't be here right now. And so life for them is simply a miracle of God's grace. And, and do you see, when you realize that you've been brought back from the grave, how could you stay in a state of resentment? How could you stay bitter against others when grace has changed everything? So Paul says the only way to kill resentment and disunity in our community is we have to go back to our roots. Remember where you came from. But not only that, Paul says if you want to find unity... Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Um, you see this shift in verse 13. At one time, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The cross has changed everything. You, you Gentiles who were once separated and alienated with no hope have now been brought near. You've been included. And while last week Paul shows the vertical implications of the cross in, in reconciling us to God, here the implications of the cross are horizontal, aren't they? They reconcile people. And verse 14 says, He himself is our peace who's made us one. And so both Jew and Gentile need to remember who we are. We are one because of Christ. Um, over history, humans have built walls to separate people and to keep people out. Um, you'll remember recently Donald Trump promised to build a wall. No, it didn't really register, that's fine. Uh, to keep the Mexicans out of the US. Um, about 70 years ago, Germany built a wall that divided the nation into East Berlin and to West Berlin along political lines. Walls divide people. And for the Gentiles, if you had gone into the temple, you would have seen a wall too. A wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles in worship. And as you walked up to the wall, you would have seen a sign. Um, a warning to not go any further 
on punishment of death. The temple in this way was a spatial representation of the division between Israel and the nations. But now in verse 14, Paul says, through the death of Jesus, he has broken down this dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Uh, The Old Testament law that distinguished between the holy and the unholy, the the clean from the unclean, has been abolished. Where the law used to set Israel apart from the nations, now in Christ, the law has been perfectly fulfilled for both Jew and Gentile. On the cross, Jesus has taken all of our impurity and unholiness. He's died for it. He's given us His righteousness that we all share. And so today, if you believe in Jesus, no matter your background, no matter your past, you are righteous, you are holy in God's eyes. Paul says, remember where you came from. Remember who you are. Can you see how the cross humbles us? If we remember where we came from, if we remember who we are now, How can you look down on someone else? How could you allow unforgiveness and bitterness to remain? In verse 15, Jesus has now created in himself one new man, one new humanity instead of the two, so making peace. And in this truth lies the hope of the world. Um, I love soccer, uh, but one thing I can't stand about soccer is the rivalry and tribalism of club football. Uh, I'm a Chelsea supporter, which means uh, Liverpool supporters kind of hate my guts from time to time and vice versa. Um, But there aren't many more bitter rivalries than in Spain um, between two teams, Barcelona and Real Madrid. When they play... The games get so heated and so bitter, the the players are often sent off. Uh, The two sets of supporters often fight after games. It's awful. But then do you know what happens? Every few months, these players will represent their national teams. They'll take off their, their Barcelona and Real Madrid jerseys and together they'll put on a Spanish one. And then guess what happens? Suddenly, they're best mates. These are the same group of players that were were (laughs) in the previous slide. Do you see that they're now on the same team? Their allegiances have cast aside historical animosity. That's what the church is. The church is a new humanity created by the cross of Christ where we throw off our old allegiances. We throw off our old divisions because they no longer divide. We are one new humanity defined by the blood of Christ. Um, A new humanity means the church isn't about Gentiles becoming Jews or Jews becoming Gentiles. No, the cross creates a whole new category of person where we're not defined by our ethnicity, but by the blood of Christ. We wear an entirely new jersey washed by his blood. In this way, the cross isn't about assimilation. No, it's one new humanity. And isn't it amazing that just here in this room, there are people from all different cultures, all different ethnicities and worldviews, 
But as we come into the church, we cast them aside because we wear the same jersey. Our unity is far more than skin deep. No, it's in our blood. In verse 16, the cross has reconciled us both to God and to each other, killing the animosity. This is the reason we fight for unity. Because Jesus died for it. Jesus died for our unity. That's what's at stake here. And so, so right now, if there's a relationship in your life that's broken or needs reconciliation, the most urgent thing for you to do is to address this. We're all busy, but in light of eternity, there's no more important thing than to be reconciled with God and reconciled to others. This might mean, and, and often we're, we're reluctant to, to take the first step of reconciliation with others um, because of what they've done to us in the past, but can I just encourage you guys today to take the first step of reconciliation, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done. That's the reason we pursue reconciliation. Um, over 2 million people from, from East and, and West Berlin had a massive celebration when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 that marked the symbolic end of the Cold War. Um, family and friends that were separated by the Berlin Wall for 28 years have finally reunited. That's what Jesus has accomplished. And so remember who you are. Um, and finally, Paul spells out what it really means for us to be the church united. He says, remember what we share. Remember what we share. Um, in verse 18, Paul says, through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. That means today, if you decide to place your trust in Jesus, you have the same access as everyone else. There's no levels of Christianity. There's no first-rate or second-rate Christians. If you are in Christ, you are one and nothing can divide us. And in this final section, Paul describes the access and privilege of the church through three metaphors. The, the, the nation, the family, and the temple. Uh, verse 19, as the church, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of the same nation. Um, if you become an Australian citizen, you get um, an Australian passport, uh, you get the right to vote, you receive uh, financial support for education, you get to wholly enjoy the benefits of belonging to this country. And it's, it's the same with being in Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you get all the benefits of being a citizen in the heavenly city. In verse 20, we even have the same privilege and access as the apostles and the prophets, why? Because we're all standing on the same foundation. Um, the church is also here described as God's family, being members of his household. Do you realize the church is one big, beautiful, adoptive family, where God has adopted us all as his children? Um, it means in the church, uh, these are people here you might not ordinarily have chosen to spend Sundays with. Um, but what we share is what brings us together. Um, in that way, the church should be the most diverse community on earth. 
and it should be the most united community on earth. And being family here means we treat older women as mothers or older men as fathers. We treat younger men and women like sons and daughters. That's the picture of the church, united as a family. Um, a few months ago, um, uh, the mum of one of our church members, Jacques, um, had a stroke and had to be rushed to hospital. Um, it came as, it's quite a shock and and so Jacques had to basically drop everything to be with his mum and especially with many of his family members overseas. Um, but what I found amazing over this time was the love and support of his life group. Um, his life group members um, came to be with Jacques in the hospital day in, day out to care for him and his mum. You know why that was amazing? Because just as Jacques dropped everything to be with his mum, that life group dropped everything too. Why do they do this? Because Jacques was a brother. Because Anne-Marie was a mother. That's what the church is. And, and God, in his kindness, um, um, his mum, Anne-Marie, has recovered, is doing well. And isn't this just a beautiful picture of what we share as the church. Uh, the pastor Mark Dever, he says, as people with little in common in the world's eyes love each other as if closer than family, all of heaven looks on with wonder at what the gospel has created. And finally, the, the church is the temple of God. Uh, the temple is the place where God dwells, where he meets with his people. Um, and in verse 21, the church is his temple. Which means as we gather, God dwells with us by his spirit. And, and do you see, the church is no longer a physical building with physical dividing walls. It's a spiritual temple. It's an international temple with no walls. Um, and as this Ephesian church would meet together under this skyline of the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the church would realize what they shared was a far greater wonder than this. It was the wonder of the church united as a family that would change the world. And so as we close our time together, I want us to just reflect a little bit on unity in the church. Uh, first, unity is powerful. What our world needs to see from the church, especially in this day, is unity. Um, in a world that's so divided, the church must be different. Um, John 17, Jesus himself prays for the church that we may be one. Just as him and his heavenly father are one. He prays so that the world would know Jesus is the Christ, that he was sent from the father. Our unity makes the gospel compelling. Um, but I want to acknowledge that um, the church historically hasn't done a great job with unity. Uh, tragically, even as Jesus died for our unity, you can see we've kind of struggled to get along. And if you can't read this, that's not good. It's, there's too many splits over the history of the church. Um, and our church hasn't been immune either. Um, but we see that even with this checkered history of the global church, 
We cannot forget, unity must be our powerful witness to the world. Um, It's really sad that um, one of the key reasons missionaries and, and gospel workers step out of ministry doesn't actually have anything to do with the mission field. But so often it's actually conflict within the ministry team, which is the reason they don't continue. And so we must guard our unity ruthlessly for the sake of the gospel. We guard it for the sake of our witness to the world. It doesn't mean that we won't disagree about things. Um, We we don't just sweep things under the rug. No, that's fake unity. Unity. Um, But what it does mean is that as we hash things out, we do it as a family. Um, Just as families are sometimes a bit dysfunctional and they fight, um, they have no choice but to just hash it out because a brother doesn't stop being a brother, a sister doesn't stop being a sister. And so we disagree not from a place of distrust, we we do it from a place of love. Um, And finally, Unity is messy. Unity is messy. It might seem a contradiction in terms, but this is the reality. I mean, think about this church. Think about what we're trying to do here at Cross Culture. We're people from all different backgrounds and and cultures and worldviews. We have a Mandarin service that's meeting above. We have a Japanese service that's meeting at 1.30. We We have kids, we have students, workers, retirees, people from all different continents. And that means our church will be messy. And so we need to learn to relate and to accommodate to people that are very different to us. Uh, Do you see that the easier thing for us to do would be to stay apart? The easier thing for Ephesus would be to create a separate church for the Jews and create a separate church for the Gentiles. Way less conflict, right? But that's not unity. Unity is found not in our shared personalities or our shared cultural backgrounds or hobbies. No, true unity is what we share in Christ. It transcends culture and background and preference. Um, Even as the church, we could physically be here in the same space, but not really engaging with people that different to us as well. That's not unity either. No, true unity is different cultures and backgrounds interacting and serving together, being in life groups together, discipling one another, because that's what the gospel has created. And so for us to be united, we need to become uncomfortable. It'll be a challenge to engage with people that are quite different to you. It's always so much easier to default to people just like you. But here God is growing something. God is growing something messy, but at the same time something beautiful. It's a diverse, multicultural family who will courageously live together and invite others into the life we share. That's why Jesus died. And that's what we must pursue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just as the Lord Jesus prayed, may we be one just as the Father and the Son are one. May may we be one so the world would know Jesus is alive. Lord, give us courageous hearts to engage with and invite others into our community completely different to us. 
But because of what we share by Christ's blood, we are now closer than brother and a sister. And we pray this in Jesus' name.